It's time for a conversation about the things we share in common. Our common hopes, our common fears, our common struggles. Together, we'll wrestle with the questions that we all have about the issues that affect our lives. This is The Common Good. Now, here are your hosts, Brian Fromm and Ian Simpkins. Hey, friends. Welcome to The Common Good. I am sleep deprived. You are way too cheery for this weather out there today. I'm trying to overcompensate, I think. Uh, I think I'm exhausted, so it just manifests as over cheeriness. I see everyone if they're in their cars right now, they're just mad because That's of true. how cold it is. I walked out to go to a meeting at Starbucks today, and I was like painfully pelted by hail. And I was like, <laughs> I'm done. I'm out. See, and I never checked the weather, so I left my house this morning in a t-shirt. <laughs> and just from the house to the you're, car, I was like, what am I doing? You're like, my children, can I wear shorts today? Seriously. Uh, no, you cannot. <laughs> I don't even check. That's how bad I am at being an adult sometimes. And this, I don't know why this surprises us every year. Like, we always get warm in March and April, and then like that late snowstorm or cold comes through, and then it gets warm again. And we all get sick. Like, And then we're like, oh, I hate it around here. What's going on? Next but, year, we'll complain about it again. Yep. Well, this uh, show is called year. The Common Good. Good chance tomorrow. <laughs> I will true. complain about That's this again. True. I know that you will. Yep. I'm going to hold you to that. You can find us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show or 1160hope.com. Plus, we're podcasted. So uh, if at any point you could subscribe and like and review, somehow, magically, that helps us. I yes, don't really understand how, but uh, please do so. Uh, plus, you can text us. 68683 is the number. And then in the message body, first type CG for Common Good. And then text us your thought, your comment, your interaction, or suggestions for the show because that for us the, the whole point of having a conversation is to bring in a diversity of opinions yep. and perspectives and uh we would love to hear from you in that way absolutely there's a story though that i found that is kind of near and dear to my heart and the, the headline kind of says it all it says connection is a core human need but we are terrible at it Crazy. i feel like i've said almost that sentence yes. myself before like oh i know that this is absolutely critical and yet we're terrible at it Tell us a little bit about this uh, story, and why do you think that it is that we are so bad at, like, real meaningful connection? Yeah, it's uh, – the, the story is basically what the headline says, right, that we often talk about what are our core human needs. And this author is saying in his book, Lost Connections, is saying one of our core human needs is connection, deep connection with other people. And this sounds so biblical to me. Ironically, you and I both have churches uh, with the name community in it. And why <laughs> is that? It's because we believe deeply that people, what's the phrase was used? People long to be known and known by others. Yep. They, that you don't, even those of us who say we want to go in and be a nameless face in a crowd, we don't want to be. We Maybe certain crowds, but for the most part, we want to be known. We want to know other people, uh, and, but yet we are bad at it. And that's what this article is about. It, it lays out that, um, that we are a tribal species, and it says, no matter, no person is an island. We're born for connection, and it's through connection to others that we accomplish virtually everything else in life. We do not just prefer healthy relationships. We need them. Hmm. And, man, I of all the things in the world that, that I buy into, it's this, that introvert, extrovert, whatever you are, we all long, maybe in different ways, but we deeply long to be known by other people uh, that that is a human thing, and that and that if you if you're like out there going, no way, I'm an island, just me and Jesus. You're like, no, you don't understand how you've been wired and how you've been made. Well, and I think that the the thing that's so interesting to me about this story is that 
like you were just saying, we long for it. And that longing apparently isn't enough to make us good at it. Yes. And uh, I think for me, the center of the whole thing is this this paragraph. It says, you've probably heard this before in different ways. The opposite of addiction is not sobriety. Mm. It's connection. The foremost pillar of happiness is a sense of belonging and purpose. Cultures that are more communal are more mentally healthy as a whole. People who are alone often die earlier and get sicker before they do. So, like, for us, uh, oh, that's like I, we can resonate with that all we want and yet still probably be terrible at it. And I yes. don't think it's a silver bullet issue like, ah, oh, it's social media is the problem. It's video games. Nope. It's, uh, it's the way our house – there's all sorts of things that I think lead toward our – isolationism and i think you're right i don't think it is an introverted extroverted thing i Not think all. we're all prone to to hide certain aspects of ourselves like we've even talked about this some of what is tricky about preaching is that we know vulnerability from the pulpit resonates yes. and yet at least from it do it so rarely yeah. like i know even in an altruistic sense man if i if i could just peel back some of the layers this will connect more deeply and still there's there's fear there for me. And I think yeah. that the, toward the end of the story, uh, it says um, the heading is focus on giving connection, not receiving it. Yeah. In order to connect with others, we have to give them our time and honest feelings and ideas and have shared experiences and openness. We do not connect with others by trying to earn approval, awe, compliments, appreciation, envy, or superiority. And I thought yeah. that in so many ways is, I think, what mm-hmm. social media has done to some of us, right? It's sort of inverted this like performer audience and we somehow I think rate our worth or value based on likes and comments and interactions and this idea of giving connection yep. rather than focusing on receiving connection. Mm-hmm. It's sort of like uh, it's, it's often the coaching that I'll give to like college students. You know, we spend so much time like looking for the one yep. rather than becoming the one, mm. right? Like I, I think when we, as long as we make the value, you know, somebody else's issue, oh, it's the reason I'm not connecting is because everyone else is so disconnected. What yep. if we put the phone away and actually was present with people when we had coffee with them and actually made time for a phone call instead of an email? Yes. Or like, what if it started with us? What if that's part of the way forward? And I think that's, again, way easier said than done. I, I, I uh, focused in on the exact same thing you did there for a different reason. Focus on giving connection, not receiving it. I think that gets at the heart of why we don't do a good job at connecting and having this sort of depth of community and connection is because we probably selfishly go at it. Like, man, why won't other people connect with me? And yeah. he said, the author here is saying, no, no, no. The first step is for you to put yourself out there authentically and look to help other people connect, hmm. right? As opposed to being like, hey, come connect with me. It's all about me. I mean, we live in a culture where it is all about us. And so when I think about what's it look like to focus on connecting with others with authenticity and what does it look like, one of the things, man, that's really a problematic in this is just the issue of time. Yeah, Is totally. this requires time. Uh, and so many of us are so guarded. It's it's. I, I'm becoming increasingly a believer that time is our most precious commodity, even more than money. Yeah. And so a lot of us go, well, I don't have time for this, so I'll just I'll I'll settle for shallow relationships. I'll yes. just settle for shallow relationships where we can joke, where other people know my name, but really they don't actually know me or or I know them because that's gonna require not just authenticity and trust, but it's gonna require time. And I don't know if you're like me, but so many things that require time of me. <laughs> I'm just like, nope, nope, nope. <laughs> don't, don't I have the don't time. have it. Right. And so part of this is valuing connection. And I think the only way we're going to value connection is to understand that we were made for it uh, and that we are going to be uh, lesser of a person or we're going to be deficient or not who we've truly been made to be 
uh, if we try to live as a as a individual on an island. Well, and, I, and I'm not so naive to think that you know every time anybody's ever taken a step out to connect, it hasn't maybe sometimes blown up in their face. Absolutely. And part of the story goes on to say some of what connection is is the willingness to get up again to keep to That's keep good. on trying to be vulnerable again because some of us have really been burned. And I, I'm just going to read this toward the end of the story. It says if our core human need is to connect with others then the most important part of healing our emotional wounds is allowing ourselves to open up again. Mm. It is simply our willingness to show up as we are and our, and our trust that we will be taken care of. It is our discernment to give our time and energy to those who respect and cherish it back. Mm. And most importantly, it is the knowledge that even if we do have to go through the fires of life, as all of us do, we come out the other end stronger, clearer, and more ready to appreciate what we have. Really good. And again, not a quote-unquote Christian article, man, but that, that feels pretty darn close to gospel, and that is... Uh, I think a good reminder that we're better together and as messy and tricky as that can be, Absolutely. it's worth leaning in rather than shying away from. And I think, man, uh, that's something that I want to do better with my life. Absolutely. Well, coming up next, we have an interview with Bob Dickey. He's the CEO of Bonvera and he believes applying foundational principles and playing to your strengths will yield transformational change in both your business and your life. That's coming up next on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hi, friends. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm, a show about diving into the mess and the gray and the stuff that sometimes just doesn't have easy answers. And uh, we'd love to hear from you. You can find us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show or 1160hope.com. Plus, the show is podcasted, if that's your jam. Literally every pod- pod- that's your podcast platforms I didn't even know existed, <laughs> we're being podcasted on. So you can true. find us. Like, subscribe, review, other words that sound like that. I would love to uh, hear from you. We'd both love to converse. And you can also text us, 68683 is the number, and then in your message body type CG for common good, and then any thought or comment you might have. Uh, but I'm absolutely thrilled to have on the phone right now Bob Dickey third. Welcome to the show, sir. Hey, thanks for having me, guys. It's quite an honor to be with you today. It's our Thank pleasure. You. Bob is the CEO of Bonvera, and he believes applying foundational principles and playing to your strengths will yield transformational change in both your business and your life. Over the span of his career in for-profit and nonprofit industries, uh, Bob has firsthand experience in leading high-growth and turnaround environments, which has led to his latest endeavor as Bonvera's new CEO. His passion for helping others pursue education and navigating the new part-time gig economy is what led to his new role. So whether he's speaking at a function or running a race, he sets a personal goal to inspire others to strengthen their finances, marriages, and families. You can learn more at robertldickey.com or bonverahq.com. And we are so thrilled because I feel like everything in that bio are things that we're talking about on the show all the time. So one one of the things that I'm curious about is how you think or believe or have seen that our world has changed in comparison to like maybe the age of my parents or grandparents, what what what's some of the trends and shifts that you've been seeing? Wow, I tell you, when you when you take a look at what we're living through right now and compare it to even just not even our grandparents, let's just compare it to our parents' generation. It, it, it's like comparing horse and buggies to a modern day Corvette. <laughs> the global economy is completely different. I know my, my mom and dad, my aunts and uncles, I grew up in the mid-Michigan area, major automotive center here within the United States. You know, it was easy for people to graduate from high school. You didn't even need a college degree. You could just enter into an automotive career, or what, Ford or Chrysler or, you know, Chevrolet, and you could work 30, 40 years, right. retire with a nice gold watch. You have a pension. You've got health care. 
people were paid so well that not only did you live a good middle-class lifestyle, but you could have a lake house up north in Michigan and, you know, boat on the weekend. Yeah, right. It, 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 that, was, that was commonplace. Mm. And look at what's going on today. We, we, manufacturing jobs have moved overseas. We've outsourced all sorts of stuff. Um, we have a techno- technology and uh, automation is revolutionizing all sorts of jobs as well. And so you take a look at millennials who are graduating high school today. They're going to end up having, the experts say, anywhere from 11 to 13 different careers. I mean, they will wow. change jobs that many times. And so the, the, the education that's needed today, the, the, the ability to be able to pivot very quickly hmm. and to move from job to job, we just have to engineer our lives completely different. I mean, my dad worked at the same place for over 30 years. Yep. You know, in my generation, I'm, gonna, I'm probably, let's say, I'm 44 years old. I'm probably on my fourth gig since I got out of wow. uh, out of college. Right. And I'll probably have, you know, more in the future. So yeah. it's just, it's completely different. I know my father-in-law, I believe he started at a company while in college and retired from it, you know, 40, 50 years later. And uh, that doesn't seem to happen anymore. So how would you help people, whether they're just graduating college or even people older than that? What does it look like to make wise career choices? Maybe you could give a little bit of advice around that. Uh, I, I speak on this all over, and it, it, here's what, where I really drive people right from the beginning. The number one, if you're trying for young people, uh, people in junior high, high school, college, and you're looking at starting out, the, 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 the thought in the old days was just like, hey, you know, just, we'll, we'll go t- test it out. Maybe we'll go get a college degree. and Who knows what we're going to do? Getting a college degree without having a plan today is extremely costly. Mm. I know people who have racked up over $100,000 in student loan debt. They get a degree. They hate it. They're not even in that career field. They're like, oh, my goodness, I just flushed a hundred grand down the toilet. So here's what we've got to do when we start. First and foremost, I'm a huge believer in this. I believe that God made everybody unique and distinctive and with a purpose. Mm. And when we discover what that is and we are operating in our God-given design, that's where we're going to flourish. And so we need to know that first because from there – with a mentor and guidance counselors and so forth, we can start to develop a career path where we're going to have success. So we don't have to, you know, guess and make a career mistake here and then pivot over there. So I really want people to start with that first and foremost. Understand how God made you. We're all unique and distinctive. Everyone's different. But make sure you're living in your God-given design before you start making career decisions. That's really good. So it seems it sounds like one of the things that you're – passionate about is uh this idea of like always being a learner this continued education what why do you think that's so important and what are some practical ways that people can be lifelong learners well again going back to the analogy of comparing our generation versus our parents my dad could graduate from high school or graduate from college and he could take that knowledge that he learned and he could leverage it his entire career Hmm. i had a recent college professor that uh, gave, got up and gave a lecture and he said that, that the, the life expectancy or the usefulness of a college degree today and today's changing environment is three years. Wow. The things that you're going to learn in college and within three years, the world's already going to be different. The technology is different. All sorts of things are different. So we have to constantly be a lifelong learner. And so when I take a look and I study successful people, CEOs, presidents of companies, people, you name it, any, any career field, people who are having success, they are at the cutting edge of the technologies and developments within that career space. 
many times they are avid readers. They're reading articles and periodicals and, and books, and they're constantly learning and honing their craft. So for whatever a person out there is doing, whatever made you successful two or three years ago, it's likely that within your career space, things are, gonna, are changing so rapidly that you're going to need to hone those skills and develop mm -hmm. those skills. So plug into conferences and be, and be learning from people who are at the cutting edge of those particular career fields so you're always at the forefront. The last thing you want to be is be like the executives at Blockbuster who are looking over their shoulder and saying, <laughs> oh, that Netflix, Netflix is no big deal. A couple <laughs> years later, Netflix put them out of business. Yep, right? yep, we don't want to yep. be those guys. We want to be the Netflix executives that are like, here's where we're going, here's where the economy's going, this is what we're going to do so that we can have success. That's good. In your bio, we use the phrase, you talked about the part-time gig economy. Can you talk a little bit about that? What is the part-time gig economy? Well, in this, in this new economy that's being developed all around us, and it really was uh, Uber is the one that's really kind of given it a name, right? So you, we have these, uh, well, we, well, most people have a vehicle. It's been sitting in the, in, in the driveway. It's not being used all the time. And we call it the Uberification of jobs. And so there's this idea where people now in their, in their spare time on the weekends or, or, or at night can go out and be an Uber driver, drive their vehicle around, and they're making extra cash. Well, you're seeing that in so many different little career fields, micro career fields are picking up, whether it's an Etsy or Airbnb or Uber. Hmm. But our new generation, it is uh, millennials. If you don't have a side hustle, if you're not doing something on the side, people kind of look at you like, hey, what's going on? Huh. It's just commonplace. It's commonplace. Hmm. And a lot of times it's because, you know, a lot of companies, to be able to save costs, instead of hiring 40 hours a week that has all the health care benefits and yeah. all the expenses, a lot of times companies for these younger people are saying, hey, we're just going to hire you for 30 hours. That way we don't have to pay benefits. Right. And so to make ends meet, these young people are having to have two or three jobs. And, you know, they're, they're waiting tables on the weekend. They're doing Uber at night. They're doing a, a, a something else. But that's the gig economy. And the, the gig economy is multiple gigs, multiple jobs. We, we piece all of this together to kind of build a life. And if you think about it, going again back to the analogy that you guys very accurately were teeing up at the beginning, this is so much different from mm -hmm. our parents or our grandparents who engineered their life around one job. You get out of work at 5 o'clock, you come home, you've got a mortgage, you've got the house, you've got the car. We've got to engineer our lives today completely different. Mm -hmm. That's fantastic. We've been talking to Bob Dickey, the CEO of Bonvera. You can learn more at robertldickey.com or bonverahq.com. Bob, thank you so much for joining us on the show today. No, it's my pleasure. I really enjoy uh, chatting with you guys. And uh, anything I can do to help, don't hesitate to reach out and ask. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Love to have you back on. Coming up next, we're going to talk with Ben Corson, who's the founder of Hope Generation and a self-proclaimed optimist. That's coming up next on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hi, friends. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm, a show about diving into the mess and the gray, the tense, the stuff that doesn't tie up with a nice, easy bow, because that's... Honestly, where most of us live most of our lives, and we'd love to hear from you. You can find us on Facebook at the Common Good Radio Show, 1160hope.com, plus the show is podcasted on literally every podcast platform we could think of, even platforms I didn't even know about. <laughs> so find us, subscribe, like, review. That really does help us a lot, out a lot. But I am absolutely thrilled to have on the phone right now Ben Corson. Welcome to the show, sir. 
Thank you so much for having me. I love how you started out with the bow's not always nice and neatly tied because <laughs> life is nice, neat, right angles. So Absolutely. If life if life is a little wild, it's okay if we are too. There you go. I, I like you already. Let me let me <laughs> let me tell you all about Ben. Ben is the founder of Hope Generation. He has a global TV and radio program. is a gifted and nationally renowned speaker. And Hope Generation TV show airs in one eight one hundred eighty countries around the world. Ben's humorous, uplifting, and high energy style. Couples with a gift to communicate God's heart in an impactful way. His ultimate mission is to generate hope in God, to build a generation of hope in others. You can learn more at bencorson.com, that's C-O-U-R-S-O-N, uh, or on Twitter at Ben underscore Corson. And uh, we are absolutely excited to have you on the show, sir. And your, the question that I want to ask first and foremost is uh, that you talk about this word optimist and I'm already so intrigued by that idea. How, how do you identify with being an optimist Yeah, an optimist is an optimistic misfit. It's a made-up word. I figure since J.R.R. Tolkien made up the word you catastrophe, then I can make up my own word too. Yeah, you're in good so, company with Tolkien. Good job. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I like that I like esteem my own rhetoric so highly that I would say it's absurd. It's absurd. But yeah, an optimistic misfit is a is a nonconformist adventurer who lives with wild abandon, childlike wonder, unapologetic optimism. So yeah, I wanna I wanna turn our generation into a bunch of optimists. That's my goal. That's fascinating because this generation, right, has been considered one of the most stressed out, depressed generations of all time. So I'm curious, what does this tell us about the the future generation and, and kind of the next decades for our country and our culture if this doesn't change, right? If you're not successful turning them into optimists. Yeah, well, the depression rates have increased rapidly. Sociological research and data now tells us we're the number one most depressed generation on record, Gen Z, Gen Y. I mean, we consume more pills in America due to anxiety and depression than the rest of the earth combined by three times over. Mm, wow. uh, antidepressants are the number one best-selling prescribed pharmaceutical medication. I mean, we live in a nation built on life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, yet we're stressed, depressed, distressed, and in deep debt over a trillion dollars to China. Wow. I mean, people in America alone commit 123 suicides per day Jeez. around the world. It's, it's 40, once every 40 seconds, there's a suicide somewhere in the world. Suicide is one of the top 10 leading causes of death. And I went through 10 years of chronic depression, which is why I'm so passionate about helping others through it, because God, Jehovah Rapha, applied the healing balm of Gilead to my heart. So mm. now I want to, you know, spend my life helping others find hope as well. Wow. Man, that's really good. Okay, so I, you have some perspective specifically on vulnerability. And one of the things we're actually talking about in the next segment is defensiveness and like the need for like true vulnerability in the age of a culture of kind of self-obsession. Can you, can you speak a little bit more to that? Why is it so important for people to see our true vulnerability? Yeah, a lot of a lot of depression comes when we try to present an image to the world that's not who we are. Hmm. Um, one 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 artist said, "I would rather be hated for who I am than loved for who I am not." Yeah, right. So so cognitive dissonance is generated an occasion when we're trying to project this facade to the world around us that that has no like real genuine authenticity or integrity to who we really are, and so. Um, the reality is I think it's so important to be vulnerable because people are impressed by our strengths, but they connect with our weaknesses. Oh, that's good. And the, the reason Jesus's message amongst others is so powerful is because he didn't just say, hear my words. He said, touch my wounds. Mm. You know, he's the word made flesh. And 
So that vulnerability, I think, um, really creates a sense of and bond of empathy with others. Oh, that's powerful. You touched on earlier that this is your journey, right? You battled depression uh, and and God healed you in some ways or, or kind of changed you. Could you uh, give us kind of the Reader's Digest version of your story? I'm very curious about what that looked like. Yeah, so I gave my first sermon in third grade, started preaching regularly at 16, became a pastor my senior year of high school. Wow. And it was when I, yeah, it was, when I, it was when I became a pastor my senior year that I really started getting uh, deeply, deeply um, invested in my own depression. And, and what happened is, is I started to, like, make a martyr of myself. And I, I, rather than getting God's power, I was trying to look for people's pity because, you know, I've been through a lot of stuff like all your listeners. You know, my brother and my sister both died in a car accident. I oh went through one, one from a car accident, one from cancer. Um, my dad's first wife died in a different car accident. Um, I went through a romantic heartbreak a few years ago, 10 years of chronic depression where I was suicidal. Like we go through stuff, all of us. So I'm not saying that to throw a pity party. I'm saying that just to, you know, let people know that I'm not just talking about, you know, rainbow sandwiches with Pegasus steak. I'm talking about like, like I'm saying this thing's real. Like the, the, the kind of hope I'm talking about is the buoyant kind that, that, you know, can survive this fiercest storms. And honestly, this is what I write about in Optimist. But this is so ironic, but one of the things God used to heal me of my depression was not some complex intervention or people sitting me down for coffee to have a long dialogue or discussion or conversation about it. What happened is a, a bunch of crazy friends came into my life, took up their skateboards and just showed me that life could be nutty again as we oh, bombed yeah, down the street. Right, right. And, and like that, that ironically, that joyfulness, knowing that life could be childlike and fun again, showed me that Jesus puts the fun back in funeral and fun is fundamental. <laughs> Oh, man, there's at least four tweetable sentences in that response, not the least of which is rainbow sandwiches and Pegasus steak. Yeah, good. I hope that makes it somewhere else on Twitter. Uh, Okay, so you you coined this phrase, Optimist Fits, which I personally love because I I find myself – I'm better at the misfit part than the optimism part. But, like, I'm curious, do you – are there, like, other Optimist Fit heroes of yours? Like, who are a few of the people that you look up to in that particular vein? Yeah, well, a lot of them are dead, but uh, they lived. They they lived as optimists. I I look at G.K. Chesterton, who said angels can fly because they take themselves lightly, mm, and he was a good. great optimist. But he was like super hopeful, even when he would debate George Bernard Shaw, you know, the literary playwright who was very skinny, thin, and gaunt, and very serious. Whereas Chesterton was like, you know, super happy and fat. He was like a Santa Claus of metaphysics. I remember there's this there's this story that he when he when he would debate George Bernard Shaw, uh, George Bernard Shaw said, um, "If I were as fat as you, I would hang myself." And Chesterton said, "And if I were to hang myself, I would use you as the rope." Or like, or like, oh my or word! Like, or like Chesterton would see uh, uh, Shaw and say, "I see there's been a famine in the land," and Shaw would reply, "And I see the cause of it." You know, like, like, like oh my he, he word! He went into, I don't know, like, I'm really passionate about literature, and so much of literature is very depressing and existential. And so the fact that Chesterton came in and brought a sense of fun and play and taking a whole lot more things a whole lot less seriously, he's a classic optimist fit hero of mine. I have a bunch more that I write about, but it would take like half an hour to talk about. <laughs> There's just a reader's digest. I love it. I love it. So my last question is this. Uh... Those of us who are Christ followers, it feels like things should be different, but we know all the statistics. That's not true. Christ followers are battling the same depression and all this stuff. For you, 
Uh, what does the hope of Jesus add to this discussion, or how is that actually the foundation of this discussion for you? Yeah, Paul said Christ in us is the hope of glory. Mm. And um, it's interesting because the word glory in Greek that he used is Shekinah, and it literally means dwelling. So this hope is an indwelling reality. It's not something that can unravel when our circumstances do or be taken from. As Jesus said, I give you a joy that no man can take from you. In fact, in the Old Testament, the Hebrew word for hope refers to being knitted. So when the psalmist says in Psalm 119, for instance, in thy word do I hope, the word hope in Hebrew literally means knitted. So hmm. it's not loosey-goosey. It's knitted to ultimate reality. It's not just some positive affirmation that unravels when our circumstances do. It's knitted to the source. So this hope in God is, uh, I believe, the panacea of the nepenthe, the cure-all that will really lift people out of depression, just like God used his hope to free me as well. Mm, that's fantastic. We've been talking with Ben Corson, the founder of Hope Generation. You can learn more at bencorson.com. That's C-O-U-R-S-O-N. Ben, thank you so much for taking the time to be on the show today. You guys are amazing. You're my fellow optimistic friends, and I can't wait. I can't wait to hopefully talk again. Love Let's do it again. Back. We would love to have you back, man. That'd be outstanding. Thank you. Okay, I'm looking forward to it, guys. Thanks again. Have Appreciate a good day, it, man. Thanks. Well, coming up next, I'm going to talk about this article that we found, Defensiveness, an Enemy of Growth and Good Relationships. We're going to talk about that next on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hi, friends. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm, a show hopefully designed to create space for conversation, to step into the mess and the chaos. And we'd love to hear from you. You can find us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show or 1160hope.com. And this next story, this article that I found, actually encapsulates a lot of my hope for this show yeah. and something that even in the three months that we've been doing, uh, that I, I've had to check my own heart, and it's about defensiveness. Before you read it, can I say that something I appreciate, not just about you, but about our show, and I hopefully we're growing people in this, is that you and I don't take all of our stuff from Christian websites. Like, I appreciate that this is psychology, and we're wrestling with, like, right. writing from psychology, to, because it points to us the truth of Scripture. Everything you're about to read and talk about uh, is is uh, is true, and and. I, I like that not everything comes from Christianity Today or everything from that. So anyway, that was it struck me today. Like I'm not, I don't normally read Psychology Today. Oh, I appreciate so. you saying that. Yeah. All right. Well, that's a good lead into this conversation then, because yep. the headline reads "Defensiveness: An Enemy of Growth in Good Relationships," mm. which again, kind of like with you know the first thing we talked about at the top of the hour, like it's one of those things that at the surface we know, yep. like, yeah, 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 it's hard to develop deep intimate relationships if everyone's being defensive all the time. Yep, and yet. <laughs> We're often very defensive. And I don't know if you're this way. Uh, I think even if you can, like, bite your tongue mm-hmm. or your digital tongue, like, there still is something innate in us when somebody says something that assumes the worst in us or, you know, rubs us uh, politically or theologically the wrong way. Like, I don't think that any person is completely devoid of defensiveness. Correct. And uh, this this is what I find so fascinating about this particular story. Again, it's not coming from a, you know, a Christological perspective at all. It's just mm-hmm. simply saying, hey, in terms of how your body and brain are actually wired— if you continue to lead into defensiveness, it's going to affect both your health and the depth of your yes. relationships. And so there's a couple of takeaways that I, I thought were pretty interesting. And I don't know. I'd love to know before we dive into them, like, how, how are you at defensiveness? I'm not like, defensive. 
Lay off, man. Come on, I'm not defensive I at all. I told you before. <laughs> my, my wife right now, <laughs> as we're talking about defensiveness, if she's listening right now, she's turning the radio up. She's ready to hear what I have to say. She's calling friends like, tune in right now. Yes. Listen to Brian lie through There's his teeth. There's about to be marital counseling. I'm hoping a breakthrough will come. If you need to crash on my couch tonight, man, just, oh, let, me, just let me know. it's so funny. <laughs> all right, takeaway number one. It's natural to get defensive when your positive self-image is threatened by a complaint or criticism, but your defensiveness may not serve you, your partner, or your relationship. And so here's the suggestion. Try to swallow your pride and strip away the more toxic aspects of an imperfectly communicated complaint or request. Act more maturely than you feel and engage with the legitimate aspects of the complaint or request so you can work things out with your partner. This self-image one is so big. Yeah, like if you massive. ask me why do I get defensive, totally, it's because any constructive criticism or anything about anything, like I think we and I are pastors, so when I think about if somebody is says something about my preaching or some leadership aspect where they have literally legitimately my best at their heart, oh, they totally. want me to succeed. Totally, I immediately go to like. Oh, you're ripping me uh-huh. like by saying this about my sermon or asking this about why I made this decision or doing this. It is not a reflection on that decision that I made or that particular sermon that I preached. It's a reflection upon me That's as a right. person. And then you bring this away from work and you take it into marriage, right? Like my wife has my bet. She wants me to succeed. She loves totally, me. Totally. If, if there's anybody I should feel uh, completely secure with, it's my wife. She says something, you know, that that she's disappointed in me that I haven't done mm-hmm. or has frustrated her or is this. I will so often go to, like, it's a personal attack uh-huh. and get immediately defensive. And that always, always escalates the situation. Uh-huh. Yep. It's no longer about uh, <laughs> the dishes hey, or the yeah, – Exactly. Right. It's no longer about the actual thing that was causing the problem. It becomes about, like – Oh, no, no. You're ripping me as a person. Now it's and existential, now, right? Oh, now it's like, <laughs> now it's about my image or it's about uh-huh. who I am as a person. And now she's frustrated. So totally. I, for me, uh, this takeaway number one is it. Like I get defensive when I'm unable to separate the criticism or the critique or yep. the suggestion mm-hmm. from uh, my value as a person. Totally. And, and I don't do that well. Just throwing that out there for mine it's the benefit of the doubt Mm -hmm. it's and again the same way i know that my wife loves me and wants the best for me and if in a moment i feel like she hasn't given me the benefit of the doubt on motive or what i meant by something i will get really defensive and what i'm realizing more and more is man ian you've not done a good job to help her feel safe in this environment like if it's if it's if she's assuming wrong motive maybe there's other things in your life that you haven't done a good job of communicating or modeling yes so that she she can assume the best of you. And that that is, again, the same kind of thing for me. Like, oh, it's no longer the action. It's like at the core, I just feel like and it's I'm... it's so hard because sometimes I'll be like, I can literally feel myself telling myself, don't get defensive while I'm getting defensive. Yes. <laughs> yeah. It's such a natural no inclination. Kidding. All right, takeaway number two, it's natural to make our complaints and requests when we are irritated, hurt, or mad, but this leads to aggressive, shaming communications that are likely to trigger partners' defensiveness and destructive mm. confidence, like you were just saying. Yep. So the suggestion, try think ahead about how to best communicate your complaint avoid personality and character attacks and extreme statements that aren't literally true for example you need to do your share of the dishes you're so selfish <laughs> when making a complaint focus on specific behaviors and present them as mutual problems to solve i love that idea yeah it's like really this, good make the problem the third party and you and your partner and you know they're on the same team to take care of that Present them as mutual problems to be solved in a smooth, calm tone of voice. And uh, for the example, can we come up with a better plan for sharing the dishwashing? I 
love that approach. Yep. And again, I, I'm not very good at it. I feel like I'm in marriage counseling right now. This is good. <laughs> this is good. I love being able to learn even as we talk because it goes back to what we said before, man. So often, just even in a marriage, small things can become big things because of how they're presented yep. or how they're taken. Uh, and and defensiveness just builds and then it gets bit. It's just crazy. And so if you could just communicate better and communicate with some thought, it would it would really nip that in the butt. Yep, absolutely. All right, here's the third and last takeaway. Uh, takeaway number three, it says defensiveness isn't entirely avoidable. People are imperfect, amen, and spontaneous <laughs> communicators, and they're very sensitive to ego-threatening information. I think that's all of us. But you can get the conversation back on track when a complaint or request triggers defensiveness. And this has mm. two suggestions. One, uh, nip defensiveness in the bud. As soon as your partner acts attacked, don't get mad and defensive about your complaint and don't respond with a counterattack. Instead, gently refocus. Restate your concern in a less loaded way. For example, uh, I see you're upset because I think I'm uh, because you think I'm saying you're not a good partner, but that's not true. I love you. I just want to work together to figure out a better way to distribute the chores because yeah. it's a problem for our relationship. Which is like that feels realistic, actually. The, the, the second yep. uh, suggestion is de-escalate. If the fight train has left the station and it's starting to derail. Apologize for your extreme statements. Restate their position to show that you're listening. Summarize their position as you understand it, and then ask them to summarize yours. Call a timeout if you need to, which is so brilliant. That's just saying, let's just settle down and meet back in 15 minutes, right? Yeah. Remember, the goal is mutual empathy and problem solving. Mm. I think that's absolutely True. Now, it does say if your partner's defensive responses take the form of violence or the threat of violence, sure, sure. that means that you're in an abusive relationship. Consider yes. calling the National Domestic Violence Hotline for help, 1-800-799-7233, which is such an important point because so often what isn't deciphered in conversations like this is right. when you're codependent and you're legitimately in an abusive situation and you need to get out. But, man, those three takeaways, I think, are, are really challenging. I don't know they really if, are. if they resonate with you in your context as well. They absolutely do. It's that first one, especially but all of this. I, this has been really, hopefully it's helpful for you out there because this has been helpful for me because I'm a naturally defensive person, and, and I'm going to try to put some of these into my life. Same here, man. Well, coming up next on The Common Good, we're going to talk about privilege, so try not to get defensive. <laughs> Z and Simkins and Brian from on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. It's time for a conversation about the things we share in common. Our common hopes, our common fears, our common struggles. Together, we'll wrestle with the questions that we all have about the issues that affect our lives. This is The Common Good. Now, here are your hosts, Brian Fromm and Ian Simpkins. Hey, friends, welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. You can find us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show or 1160hope.com. Plus, we are podcasted. Somebody even yesterday was asking, oh, can you guys please get on Google Podcast, which I didn't even know was a thing, and we're already there. So whoever's responsible for making us. that happen. Thank thank you to the team, by the way. Yeah. There's, there's a team of people making all that happen each and every day. It's not just our producer, Josh, who does a great job, but there's so many other people behind the scenes yeah. that make this content available and shareable, and there's a lot of people doing a lot of really great things. I'm really grateful for them. Uh, but but Brian, the one thing we do need to discuss is that it is currently 62 degrees in our studio right now. 
Yeah, you want to talk about that? I'm cold. <laughs> That's all I wanted to say. But it's something. It's do cranking. you feel better now saying that? I wonder if this makes us better though. Like if it keeps us on edge. We're like, <laughs> when have you ever been better when cold? Right now. <laughs> all right. Yeah. The I exception like, to the rule, I guess. I am like Elsa right now. Right? Oh, okay. See? That's I, you don't. Your kids I, aren't old enough. I barely get that reference. I get as having had two daughters go through the Disney stage. I'm. Right in on it. Okay. I'll allow it. Okay, so you. you came across this article by Kyle Corver. Right? Yeah, it's been flying around Twitter. Yes, it's all over the place. And it, the title is simply Privilege. And yeah. so uh, when you sent that to me, I was like, oh, okay, let's let's get into it. So just kind of tell us a little bit of the story first. So Kyle Corver, any of you who are basketball fans, you know he used to be on the Bulls. He has been in the NBA for a decade. Kyle Corver is one of the best three-point shooters in all of the NBA. Uh, and this was written in the Players' Tribune. And so the reason I bring that up and make that point is the way the Players' Tribune works is not that it's uh, somebody else writing about Kyle Korver or his words. The Players' Tribune is the actual players' writing. So this is not uh, the the opinions of Kyle Korver. This is the writings of he Kyle Korver. Yes, yes. Uh, and another thing that is important for, to point out for you and I is that Kyle Korver is one of the most outspoken believers in all of the NBA. Mm-hmm. And a third thing that makes this article very important, uh, a background to it, is that Kyle Korver is one of the 25% in the NBA uh, who are white or who just who are not African-American. Okay. So uh, that's kind of the groundwork for Kyle Korver. A, another important point to this story is that Kyle Korver plays for the Utah Jazz. He began the year on the uh, Cleveland Cavaliers. Uh, he now plays for the Utah Jazz. And a, there was an incident in Utah the other day uh, that that spurred him on to write this. But he plays for the Spurs? No. That, I see what you did there. <laughs> I see what you did there. All right, please continue. He plays for the Utah Jazz. And Kyle Korver, um, the, the, the arena in Utah has a, um, uh, let's call it a reputation for there being some hostility, specifically racial hostility uh, within the organization. Not the organization, but at... Uh, in the arena. And so the other day, Kyle Korver, he plays for the Utah Jazz. Russell Westbrook, you know Russell Westbrook? Yeah, you know Russell uh-huh. Westbrook. Point guard for the Oklahoma City Thunder. You've probably seen this on SportsCenter. Westbrook was on the bench and all of a sudden started yelling huh. at somebody in the stands. Oh boy. And Westbrook went a little bit far. He basically said, I am going to beat you and your wife. So that was Jeez, not always. good. Right. So all these people are immediately ripping Westbrook, right? And then it came out as to why Westbrook went crazy with this. And the reason that Westbrook went crazy is because the guy sitting a couple rows back was hurling not just insults, but racial insults at him that were as derogatory as you can imagine. And so the Utah Jazz, there was this big uproar because Westbrook wasn't going to take it. And if you know anything about the NBA, Westbrook is the last guy you want to mess with. <laughs> right, right. So Westbrook's not going to take it, but all these other players come to his defense. They're like, no, that we've, we've felt that in Utah. This is what's happened. This happens to us all over the place. And so you get into that whole debate. It became about heckling, right? Can you heckle just because you're buying a ticket? Hmm. But now the conversation and what Corver's going at is, Corver says this very interestingly in this article. He says, uh, I felt safe on the court that night. Russell Westbrook did not. Hmm. And his whole point of his article, and it was very gutsy for him to write this, was that he took it off the basketball court and extended it to our culture. And he basically said, it's on, it's on us as white people. And if you can't tell, Ian and I are two white guys here, right? It's it's on us as white people who traditionally have been people of privilege within our culture 
to try to understand the effects and, and what it's like for African-Americans within our culture uh, and to empathize in that that the that the white people need to be the ones to step in and try to help break down systems of injustice, not just say tell you know hope that the African Americans do it, or not just turn a blind eye. Yeah, right. And you you especially have brought up this concept of privilege, and I'm very curious. I want to I want to know your feel on this a little bit. But those people out there, like I I could be playing with fire here, but we would love to hear from you on this six eight six eight three CG plus your comment. Uh, because this is one of those hot button topics that people get really worked up about on Facebook, on Twitter, uh, on every on talk radio, because people want to be like, it's not my fault or it's not this or they're overblowing it or and it goes back and forth. And so this is one of the most prominent white NBA basketball players saying this is a problem. I believe I need to do something about it within the NBA and that me and my fellow white people need to step in and pick up this cause as well within our culture. Well, okay, so the paragraph that stands out to me, and it's a long article, yes, and I encourage is. you to read it. because it, And it's, it's all over the place right yeah, now. Yeah, it's, it's good. He said, uh, in many ways, the more dangerous form of racism isn't that loud and stupid kind. It's the kind that announces itself when it walks into the arena. It's the quiet and subtle kind, the kind that almost hides itself in plain view. It's the person who does and says all the, quote, right things in public that are Perfectly friendly when they meet a person of color. They're very polite, but in private, well, they sort of wish that everyone would stop making everything, quote, about race right. all the time. It's right. the kind of racism that can seem almost invisible, which is one of the main reasons why it's allowed to persist. So in this conversation about white privilege or privilege in general, uh, that is one of the difficulties of privilege if that's the system that you've always known. Uh, I remember a quote. Uh, from about a year and a half ago that I read, and I don't remember the source, but he said, when you're used to privilege, equality can feel like oppression. If that's always, if that's the only water you've ever swam in, uh, any sort of adjustment to that system can feel like an attack. And I've certainly mm-hmm. not only witnessed it, but probably even felt it myself. And I'm, I'm very, very grateful. Uh, my family has always taught us to think critically, to ask good questions, and to to do the best that we can to surround ourselves with the diversity of voices. Yes. Um, so I do feel like in a lot of ways where I was raised and how I was raised has helped me not be a- as defensive maybe yep. um, when confronted with some of these things. But I, I'm also realizing the older I get, how often I am complicit in some of these things, not overtly, but by, like you're saying, by not speaking out when I see it or observe it or uh, by the things that I allow as not being that big a deal yep. or like all, those are the systemic things that I think he's going after. He's like, that's the invisible racism that yep. is so much harder to kind of peg and converse regarding because it's just sort of the water we swim in. Yep. And so it's like, ah, why, what's the big deal, right? Like yep. this example that he gives at the beginning of the article is like everyone around is like, okay, that's awful. Yeah. That's vile. But this like subtle stuff, this systemic stuff is way harder to talk about. He does something really powerful that I hadn't really thought of either. And that is this. He differentiates between guilt and responsibility. Yeah. And this is what I hear. And I feel often like this. I'm like, hey, I can only control what I can control. So I'm not going to feel guilty for what other people do. Mm. Like, uh, and that's where the argument usually stops with people. Like, hey, uh, I'm not overtly racist or whatever. And so why should I feel guilty for X or Y? And that's kind of it's kind of a bottleneck to the conversation. And Corver says it's not about guilt. It's about responsibility that that whether you have something to feel guilty or not, we all have a responsibility, uh, whether you're black or white, uh, whatever you are. We all have a responsibility. And I would say as Christians, we have a greater responsibility uh-huh. 
to uh, to, uh, to attack this together. Yep. And so many of us, we talk about defensiveness. So many of us get defensive and mm-hmm. say, well, I didn't do anything. I'd have nothing to feel guilty about. Right. That's not the conversation here. He's saying the conversation needs to be about responsibility. Yeah. We're all part of this culture. Let's take responsibility for it, whether we've caused it or not. Uh-huh. Let's take responsibility for making it better. So my, my buddy Samuel Marks is a, a really brilliant songwriter and pastor and thinker, and uh, I've seen him tweet this a couple of times, where it just simply says, it doesn't have to be our fault to be our responsibility, mm. which to me is such a convicting call to action. And again, there's obviously multiple sides to these conversations that would require a whole lot more time than we've Correct. given it now, but I, I, I fully appreciate that call, particularly as guys who are often in the majority context yep. to say, nope, that's not okay, and I'm going to stand up even though it may be unpopular or uncomfortable. Or um, I didn't do it. Right, totally, because yep. it doesn't have to be our fault to be our responsibility. Yep. Well, coming up next, we're going to interview Ryan Dowd, who's the executive director of a large homeless shelter outside of Chicago called Hested House. I've been there numerous times, mm. and the ministry and the work that they're doing there is absolutely phenomenal. I can't wait for you guys to learn a little bit from him. That's coming up next on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, friends, welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm, a show about entering into the mess and the gray and the tense, the stuff that doesn't have easy answers, because we think that's the common space that most of us live in most of the time. But the, the, the second goal, though, the second meaning of common is what do we have in common? And so we're trying to create space for dialogue in a world where we, we seem to be shouting louder and louder. We want to lean in rather than a way to actually have conversations, to put down our defenses, to hopefully learn some things. And so we'd love to hear from you. You can find us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show or 1160hope.com. Plus, the show is podcasted on any platform you can think of, podcasts, platforms that I've never even heard of. So uh, (laughs) like, subscribe, comment, review, all of that stuff helps us out a lot. Um, I'm so excited, though, to have in the studio for two segments, mm-hmm. Ryan Dowd is in the house. Ryan, welcome to the show, sir. Thank you. Glad to be here. Let me tell you all just a little bit about him before we dive into it. Uh, Ryan is the executive director of a large homeless shelter outside of Chicago called Hesed House. He regularly travels the country, training libraries, police departments, schools, and other organizations on how to work compassionately with challenging homeless individuals. And uh, I've been to Hesed House a number of times myself. Um, but for people who have no idea what that is, just to start us off, what what is Hesed House? Yeah, so we're a, we're a large shelter, but we're so much more than a shelter. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. We try to be a, a one stop shop. Anything someone needs to get back on their feet again, we have it. We got multiple housing programs, case management, job training, mental health counseling, substance counseling, legal clinic, medical clinic. Again, anything you need to get back on your feet again, we have it in one place. Mm-hmm. So we're both pastors. We've talked about that before. Uh, how does Hesed House mobilize the church? What what role does the church play with you guys uh, towards helping respond to homelessness? We absolutely believe in the church. In fact, the, the church does the vast majority of the work at Hesed House. Oh, really? Yep. Okay. Uh, there's about 90 different organizations, 90 different churches that volunteer at Hesed House. Uh, all the cooking, all the clean, or all the, the running the shelter. Pretty much we have a, a very skeleton crew staff that's there to, to manage, to keep everybody safe and keep everything yeah. kind of orderly. But uh, but the day to day is being run by about seven thousand volunteers from from ninety churches. No wow. kidding. Okay, so before I forget, is there a website for Hesed House? Is there a place that if someone's listening right now, either because we found too that some people that listen are a part of a church, and plenty of other people either went to church and have left, or or like considering faith maybe for the first time. Is there a website or a place people can go to learn more about Hesed House and and get involved themselves? Yeah, HesedHouse.org. And Perfect. Hesed has got only got one S, so it's H E S E D. House.org. I think I made that mistake uh, for the whole first year I've been at community spelling it wrong. So that's okay. <laughs> You're not the only one. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure of it. 
All right, so we were talking off air a little bit. You've just been on tour with a certain Mighty Ducks celebrity uh, promoting some work. Could you tell us a little bit about... A certain <laughs> Mighty Ducks celebrity. <laughs> There's a couple of celebrities in that film. Tell us a little bit about who you're on tour with and uh, what you were doing. Yeah, so Emilio Estevez made a movie about libraries and homelessness uh, called The Public, which just came out uh, a few days ago. It's a, By the way, it's a fantastic movie. Mm, super, yeah. super, super funny, surprisingly. And uh, No, it doesn't sound funny, but it actually yeah, is. Right. It's, it's a really sweet and, and endearing movie and, and funny and entertaining. Uh, so he made this movie about libraries and homelessness. I had written a book about libraries and homelessness. Wow. And then one day I got a, uh, a Facebook friend request from Emilio Estevez. <laughs> and, and I thought it was really? my buddy. Yeah, I thought it was my buddy Dave messing with me. And so I was going to type him a nasty message <laughs> until I realized it had pictures of his kids in there and everything. I thought, oh, my gosh, this, this is the real this dude. Actually, Emilio Estevez. Yeah. So Facebook messaging led to emailing, led to phone calls. Led to him asking me, hey, why don't you come out to Santa Barbara for the Santa Barbara Film Festival and, and come see the movie? So my wife and I flew out there and we saw the movie and there was a, a Q&A afterwards. And someone asked a question about homelessness that he couldn't answer. He goes, well, you know, I, I don't know the answer to that, but I think I know who does. Hey, Ryan, now come on up here. <laughs> <laughs> and no, so No it, prep, no. No prep. So I, I answer the question, answer a couple other questions that people ask about homelessness. And when it was done, Amelia goes, you know, that, that worked pretty well. We should do that again. Whoa. And so he showed the movie at the American Library Association conference, and we did a few more Q&As, and that worked really well. And he showed the film at the Toronto International Film Festival, and we did some Q&As there, and that worked really well. Mm. And then, uh, I don't know, maybe four months ago, he called me up and he said, I'm going to do a 30-city tour. <laughs> you want to come? Uh, can you come? And no, uh, I said, well, uh, sure. Okay. <laughs> I got nothing going on. I got on. nothing going on. I just run in the second largest homeless shelter in Illinois. <laughs> and uh, I wasn't able to hit all 30 cities, but I'd hit, I think, 21 of them. Wow. And uh, we did about 30 different Q&As together, and it, and it just wrapped up this uh, this last Friday when the movie came out. No, oh, that's kidding. awesome. So you bring up homelessness and libraries. I, I was often would do work or still do work in the Downers Grove Library. That's where I live. And I'm always amazed how many homeless guys are in there and, and women, and you see them all there. And it's always made me curious. Are libraries um, – excited might be the wrong word. Are they open to having people, or do you guys run into a lot of um, government and library people like – trying to figure out ways to get people out of their libraries. What's kind of the reception that you find uh, in most of the local libraries? Yeah, most librarians I've talked to, in fact, the vast majority are very welcoming to everyone. And they take their role very, very seriously as being a truly democratic space where anyone, regardless of their socioeconomic status, can be Mm. there. Uh, And so they're, they're, they're thrilled to serve people who are homeless, people who are middle class, people who are wealthy, everyone in between. Uh, what they struggle with sometimes is how do I handle somebody who's struggling with paranoia or delusions mm-hmm. or or an addiction and and they're not they're not trained for that in library school, yeah. which is right. where I step in and say, hey, well, let me give you some of the tools and techniques we use in a homeless shelter oh. to compassionately manage people who are struggling with various issues. That's brilliant. Okay, so I understand that you actually started volunteering at Hesed House when you were like. 12 or 13, right? What, what, okay, so how did you get involved in the first place? And what has it been like over the course of, you know, years now since you were a kid to, I imagine, watch a ministry kind of grow and develop? And I imagine maybe some pitfalls, some obstacles. Like, what, what has that journey been like since you, since you first volunteered, like as a kid? Yes, yeah, so I started volunteering when I was 13. And the way I got started was I was in Sunday school class and they passed around a sign up sheet. And I, and, I, and I didn't know what Hesed House was, I didn't know anything about homeless shelters, never been to a homeless shelter. I had no idea what I was signing up for, but I realized that all of the girls in class had signed up and none of the boys. <laughs> it's always the way it works. <laughs> and those were odds that were good. I yeah. like those odds. <laughs> the odds. And so literally, I went the first time I went to a homeless shelter, I was looking for a date. There wow. you go. 
But uh, when I got there, it was so different than my kind of standard white middle class upbringing. And, and there was diversity racially and, and there was diversity, obviously, economically. And, and, and not everyone – some people were talking to themselves. Not everybody had all their teeth. And there was some addiction issues that were pre- prevalent and some mental illness. And it was so different than anything I had grown up with that it really – I felt called there. And I didn't know I felt called there. Yeah. When I was 13, I just knew I liked it there. Oh, but you can't tell anybody when you're 13 yeah. that you like it at the homeless shelter. Yeah, right. And so I kept – volunteering in junior high and high school into college, joined the staff in college, uh, worked there through the end of college, through law school, and then uh, became wow. executive director after taking the bar exam. Wow. It does feel like a country song. I went I went to the homeless shelter to find my first date or something. <laughs> what country are you listening to? <laughs> not a lot. Maybe I'm yeah, apparently not. Uh, so I'm curious, what is one misconception that you are constantly fighting that people, uh, you know, in churches or just people who aren't, don't have any experience with homelessness, what is one of the common misconceptions that you're constantly fighting against for people. So the most common misconception is that the stereotype we have of homelessness is what homelessness is. And mm. and let me let me break that down a little bit. There are, there are basically three different types of homelessness, three different types of homeless individuals. At Hassett House, 50% of the people we serve are with us for two weeks or less. Wow. They're barely homeless. They're with us three nights, you know, one night, 14 nights. Wow. But they're barely with us. This population typically has no significant major life barriers. There's no mental health issue, substance abuse issue, legal issue, medical issue. Typically, there was some sort of economic crisis. The person became homeless, worked their butt off. They get back on their feet again. Gotcha. They don't don't look, sound, smell homeless the Mm. way we think of homelessness, looking, sounding, smelling. The next 40% is with us for more than two weeks, less than one year. This population typically has one major life barrier. There's a mental health issue or Mm. a substance abuse issue or a legal issue or a medical issue. Mm. But this population also doesn't look the way we expect homelessness to look. It's only that last 10% who are chronically homeless for a year or longer, one year, two years, five years, 10 years, where you start to actually look at the person and say, yes, that person looks the way I expect homelessness Mm, to look. But but 90% of people who are homeless just simply do not fit what we think of when we think of it as homelessness. It's only that last 10% that that there starts to be a resemblance to the stereotype. So I I think that statistic alone is probably super surprising to people. And so coming up next, I want to learn not only a little bit more about that, but I also want to, if you're willing, get into some of the stories, because I think at, at some level, people hear statistics all the time, but it's not until we are actually entering into the stories with the men and the women that I know that you're interacting with all the time that I think that our, our heart begins to change. And you mentioned briefly that your, your faith is tied up in all of this as well. Uh, so I'd love to talk a little bit more about that. If you're just joining us, we're talking with Ryan Dowd, the executive director of uh, Hesed House outside Chicago. Uh, we're going to continue to talk to him in the studio right here at The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm, a show about taking a deep dive into the stuff that doesn't always have easy answers. And we'd love to hear from you. You can find us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show or 1160hope.com. But I'm excited that we have in the studio Ryan Dow, the executive director of Hesed House. And he regularly travels the country. He's just traveling with Emilio Estevez, uh, talking about their new movie. And he trains libraries, police departments, schools, and other organizations on how to work compassionately with challenging homeless individuals. You can learn more at homelesslibrary.com or hesedhouse.org. That's Hesed with one S. And uh, I mentioned before the break, I want to get into a little bit of some of the some of the humanity, some of the stories, because so often I think... Uh, we exist in sort of statistics land, and I think sometimes people kind of glaze over, you know, like sometimes it sounds like these issues and these um, obstacles are so massive that people kind of shut down, and it's not until we 
enter into the, the stories that we really begin to see our heart change a little bit. Could you, are there a couple of stories in your time in this role that really stand out to you as like life shifting or heart changing stories? Yeah. So what the things that really stand out to me are the, are the, are the extremes. So for yeah. example, um, I, I met a woman in the shelter who she was the actual author of Harry Potter and she hated that, that British woman who stole the, the stole the, uh, the stole her idea. Stole her idea. <laughs> And uh, she also had won the lottery a few times, never gotten collected, played, yeah. paid on that. Um, we had a gentleman who was insistent that McDonald's had stole the idea for the Egg McMuffin from him. Huh. Uh, we had a gentleman who uh, had played drums for Eric Clapton. Uh, and then one day we were watching MTV and we saw that he was actually playing drums for Eric Clapton. He really had. No. He had oh my goodness. We had another gentleman who uh, who kept saying, you know, I, I was uh, Secret Service for Bill Clinton back in the 90s. And then one day I saw a picture with Air Force One, Bill Clinton, and then this gentleman standing behind him with an no earpiece. He really had kidding. been. He had been. Uh, and so the stories, it's funny, it's when you hear the stories, wow. you, your first inclination is, that's not true. And sometimes it, it's it's shockingly true. It be, and what we tend to forget is that there's this whole life before a person becomes homeless that, uh-huh. that no one – well, some people are born homeless. Unfortunately, we actually do have babies who are homeless. Mm, wow. But but most people come into it after after some time and, and the, you know, there's a full story there that the person you think of is just that, that homeless guy is actually, you know, an out-of-work mechanic who's a big Cubs fan and, and right. loves b- rebuilding old Mustangs and, you know, his favorite book, Scrapes of Wrath. And, and there's that whole humanity there that we tend to forget when we just look at that homeless guy. Totally. Right? So I'm wondering, uh, I've never really thought of this, but when a kid is in the homeless shelter, how does school work? Do they go to a school around there or back to the school they were at? Or what? how does that happen? So back in the 80s, about 80% of homeless kids just didn't go to school at all. Oh. And, and the, rea- the reality was that what would happen was if you, were, if you lived in one school district and your shelter was in a different school district, the old school district would say, oh, we don't live here anymore. We mm. don't have to take you. The new school district would say, oh. You don't have a utility bill. We don't have to take you. And Mm. and the kids just didn't go to school. And then in 95, uh, we actually got involved in a lawsuit over this uh, with a local school district. I won't tell you which one, but it was (laughs) dealt with Wabonzi High School. (laughs) And uh, Thank you for keeping that going. Sure. uh, Well, they they screwed up. They they sued children to keep them out of the schools. And uh, we we countersued and and we lost. And Mm. the judge said the the law is pretty clear. They, They don't have to take them. And we, we heard that. We said, oh, if the law is pretty clear, then the law needs to be rewritten. Yeah. And so we headed down to Springfield and got the law in Illinois changed. So no ki- kidding. So that kids could choose which – the family gets to choose to stay in the existing school from before their homelessness or switch to the one where they are now with the oh, shelter. Wow. And then all the other states started to get jealous. And then in 2002, the No Child Left Behind Act was passed. And a tiny, tiny piece of it took Illinois law almost verbatim and made it, it made it federal law. And wow. so now the statistic is 80 percent of homeless kids do go to school. Wow. Uh, and it has to out. So it's 100 uh, percent within 24 hours because that's what the law says. And we know that's what the law says because we wrote it. You wrote the law. Yeah. <laughs> that is incredible. Cool. OK, so I'm trying to keep my game face on and try to hide some of my excitement that you're here because th- this is actually a topic that I've, I've been passionate about for as long as I can remember. I was, I was raised outside Detroit. So it was kind of a reality that my parents were always very intent in making sure that we were aware of. Uh, I moved out to Elgin, Illinois, and uh, became a youth pastor and would bring our kids to a soup kitchen every week and really got to know the community there, but realized man, just a soup kitchen interaction isn't enough. So I just began like hanging out with the homeless in our streets. And then um, then I started taking like leftover donuts from the soup kitchen and I drive to the south side of Chicago after youth group at like one, two o'clock in the morning and just walk the streets with donuts and I'd give people rides um, in my car, like not really knowing what I was doing and eventually felt so convicted. I, I flew to Philly and, and spent a week on the streets because I wanted to just experience it firsthand and that 
kind of rattled my entire world. Um, and, and, you know, a lot of times I think people are really worried about me. Like, that's not a smart move. What are you doing? You're, you know, three feet tall. That's not a great thing. But I, I, I could not shake the fact that um, this particular conversation was so close to the heart of Jesus that I, I just needed to learn more. I wanted to lean in more. I wanted to, I wanted to be more proximate than I ever had been. And you'd mentioned briefly last segment um, that your faith is tied up in all this for you as well. Can you, can you speak a little more to how your faith informs your job and your heart uh, for the homeless of Chicago and Illinois and beyond? And, and, and what would that be like for someone listening who maybe is feeling that same kind of nudge in, in their faith as well? Mm. Yeah. I always grew up in a church and, and I always, maybe 50% of it resonated with me and 50% mm. didn't resonate with me. And then that first time I showed up at Hesed House when I was 13, the, the gospel, a hundred percent of the gospel completely resonated in that space. Mm. It was the, the first church, at, since that, it was first church at the time and first church, only church ever, where I believed in 100% of the theology, yeah, you know, and, yes. and, and it's a homeless shelter. Mm. Uh, and that's because there's this hyper, hyper focus on the least of these, on, yes. on the most Ooh. vulnerable, on the most marginalized. And, um, you know, with the idea that, that, that we, as, as people of faith, have a special obligation to people who've been marginalized and excluded uh, and, and, and where there's injustice. And in Hesed House, uh, if you're not familiar with the term Hesed, it's a Hebrew term. It's supposed to be pronounced Chesed. Yes. Uh, it, it's uh, the most prominent, the most uh, well-known usage of it is in Micah 6, 8. What yeah. does the Lord uh, ask of us but to, to do justice, love, mercy, mm-hmm. i.e. Hesed. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's, it's translated compassion. And walk humbly with your God. And, and that, that, that verse, that idea, that concept just completely resonates everything, with everything we do at Hesed House, and it's, it's kind of been my, my life's work, my life's calling. Yeah. And so it's, it's absolutely that, that call to the most vulnerable, to the least of these, that, yes. uh, that really is what attracts me to Hesed House and keeps me going day after day, even when, uh, even when it gets sad or, or tough. Yeah. And I want to jump on that. You, this is obviously your lifeblood. This is your life mission. Uh, but you probably are surrounded by people who don't seem to care very much, right? right. Uh, people in churches, whether it be believers, non-believers, whatever. What keeps you from getting discouraged as you, you know, you're doing this day after day and there's still homeless people everywhere. And, and it's, you know, a lot of people in our culture don't really seem to care that much. How do you stay positive and not get discouraged by what you see around you? Well, the good news is I actually don't know many people who don't care about homelessness because well, I don't, I don't hang out world. with them. Yeah, every, pretty much everybody I, like I hang that. out with cares about homeless people. All right. Touche. And, and so, but that, that, it's, that's actually an answer to the question in the sense that when, you, when you're surrounded mm. by people who believe that the world can be tra- changed, are trying to change the world, believe that homelessness can be, homelessness can be ended, and are trying to end homelessness, yes. that's a pretty darn inspiring place to be. Yeah, yeah, no kidding. All right, so to piggyback off of that then, I, I just kind of want you to go for the jugular on this one. <laughs> I'm going to ask a very specific question for for someone listening uh, who considers considers himself a Christ follower, Jesus person, they're driving in their car, they're listening on the podcast saying, I'm someone who just doesn't care about homelessness. It just isn't my, it isn't quote my thing. I'll leave that for the people whose thing is uh, wired for the least of these or wired to love the marginalized. What, what would you say to the Christ follower right now that's like, oh, I, f- I love my church, I attend regularly, this just isn't my thing? I'm going to be a little more gentle than going for the jugular. That's not really, that's not really my style. Uh, but if I were to get a, a little a little rougher, you know, I, I think I would say that it, it's hard to say that if God cares about the poor, God cares about the marginalized, God cares about the most vulnerable, that, that I don't. Yeah. To, to, to say that I don't care about what God cares about, that's a, that's a pretty ballsy move. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. With the minute or two we have left, what are uh, I'm on your website now, and there's talks about needs and this and that. What are... 
very specific ways that now, you know, if people are driving, they're like, I want to, I want to help. So individuals and churches, what are, what's the next step and what are very specific things people can do at Hesed House? Yeah. So for, for churches, we, we, we need more churches that volunteer. We got 90, we could use 91. We yeah. could use a hundred. We, we need more. It's yep. a, it's a pretty heavy lift to, to cover 365 days of the year in, in, Two, two full shelters, et cetera. And so we just need more shelter, or we need more churches to volunteer. Mm. Uh, individuals, the first request would be, if your church volunteers, come in with your church. That's yeah. really the best way to come in. Mm. Uh, if your church doesn't volunteer, absolutely, you know, we can try to get you plugged in with, with a, a church, another church that's volunteering, or, um, you know, obviously we need stuff that's listed on the website, yep. what we need. Uh, money's always appreciated. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, there's, there's lots of different ways to, to intersect with us. Awesome. Um, one of the easiest ways to volunteer is to email volunteer at hessenhouse.org. Okay. And uh, our guy, Bruce, will get, get back to you. Right awesome. on. Okay. You've been listening to Ryan Dowd, Executive Director of Hesed House. You can learn more at hessedhouse.org. That's H-E-S-E-D, house.org, or homelesslibrary.com. Go see the movies promoting uh, called The Public. And uh, please, 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 I'm telling you firsthand, I've been there. Take the time to go there. Experience this firsthand. I guarantee it'll change your life. Ryan, thank you so much for being in the studio with us today. Thank you. Really appreciate it. You've been listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Here's some weird stuff we found on the internet. Here's some more weird stuff we found on the web. I'm wondering what the note is that he sings it there. The weird stuff that we found on the internet. What is that? Oh, you hit it too. I don't know. Nailed it. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins along with Brian Fromm. You can find us a couple of places. Dunkin' Donuts, <laughs> Dairy Queen, yes. also on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show, 1160hope.com, and the show is podcasted on platforms that didn't even know existed, mm-hmm. but we like to end the show every day with just a little bit of insanity that we found online. Again, just to be clear, we didn't find that nope, online. Nothing to do with this. Our producers found these articles and then have loaded sound effects into the computer. We have no idea what they are, so we're going to read them sight unseen. If you have an issue with any of them, we're going to give you the addresses of our producers later so you can visit them <laughs> directly at their directly. house. Go. So if we giggle halfway through, that's what's going on. Brian, why don't you kick us off? You say go to their house? Yeah, why not? Okay. That's, that's good. That's accountability. Colorado. Bear destroys vehicle in search of gummy bears. <laughs> that's funny. A woman has learned the hard way that bears enjoy eating their gummy equivalent. The woman said her vehicle was severely damaged by a hungry bear who oh. managed to find a bag of gummy bears in her car. Every door, every wire, almost every inch inside the Subaru Forester is destroyed. That's he must have just gotten in, got up and around, got in the back seat, and left a little surprise in the back seat. <laughs> <laughs> she was headed to work Thursday when she opened, when she walked outside her home to find both the car, the garage door were open, the car was all battered up, and there were no more gummy bears. Hey, boo boo, let's see what we got in this picnic basket. <laughs> Actually, makes me think of a comedian that I really love uh, named Dimitri Martin. He says. Uh, I don't feel like bears and worms have anything in common until I think of the word gummy. <laughs> All right. You ready for mine? I'm ready. Here we go. Whoops, I grabbed two. I am so tired. California. Woman discovers that she has 29 siblings after oh. taking DNA test and counting. Wow. For Shauna Harrison, her journey from only one child to a sister with 29 siblings started with a revisit to her 23andMe profile. Having known for more than a decade she was conceived by sperm donors, she took a test from the DNA service Uh. in 2013 to learn more about her family history. 
As a fitness trainer with a PhD in public health, she wanted to know more about her health history. The site didn't have much health information at the time, said Harrison, so she didn't return until 2017. When she changed her profile from anonymous to public, she discovered she had a half-sibling sharing the same donor. The next day, I got an email from one of the siblings that said, hey, looks like we're related. Not sure if that's a surprise to you. (laughs) (laughs) So it just goes on and on and on and learns that she now has 29 siblings and counting. Oh, Mr. DNA, where did you come from? From your blood. Just one drop of your blood contains billions of strands of DNA. The building blocks of life. <laughs> that was a Jurassic Park reference, right? I don't know. Do you know I've never seen Jurassic Park? Are you kidding me? Oh, Africa. Oh, boy. <laughs> Africa's richest man withdrew $10 million just to look at it. <laughs> I, I can understand that. Nigerian billionaire Aliko Dangote, known as Africa's richest man, told a forum <laughs> in the Ivory Coast on Saturday that he once took $10 million in cash out of the bank just to look at it and get into his head that this was real money, not just figures on paper. Huh. When you're young, your first million's important, but after that, the right. numbers don't mean much. One day, <laughs> I cashed $10 million, put them in the boot of my car, I put it in my room, I looked at them, and I thought, hmm, now I believe I have money, and took it back to the bank the next day. Money, money. Money. <laughs> yeah, Brian, what was it like when you made your first million? <laughs> yeah, I'll let you know Did what I do. <laughs> All right, England, downsizing huge 9,300 beer can hoard, quote, painful. This is such a weird story already. A man who has spent more than 40 years collecting 9,300 beer cans has had to get rid of the bulk of them so he can buy a smaller house. (laughs) Nick West from Langford in North Somerset has moved into increasingly larger homes to keep pace with his growing collection, but now he wants to downsize, meaning a reduction in his collection to only 1,500 beer cans. Oh, poor guy. Mm, beer. Yeah, that's, that sounds Sometimes about right. I think, I think Keith Pixies just to do Simpsons episodes. I think that's the go. driving force for sure. Tennessee. I also know that now we can start guessing what the drops are going to be. Like I'm like, oh, I know which one's coming. <laughs> Man lands plane on highway, taxis to high school for career day. Oh, a flight instructor at the Lawrenceburg Lawrence County Airport took an unusual ride to career day. He took a plane. The instructor was scheduled to participate in the career day at the school. He was going to fly his plane to the school as a display. Apparently, when he got near the school, he realized there's no place to land near the school. The pilot (laughs) then decided to land on Highway 43, a five-lane highway north of Lawrenceburg, and then drove the plane to the school. The Texas Highway Patrol and the FAA, they're investigating the incident. Of course they are. Surely you can't be serious. I am serious. And don't call me sure. <laughs> I, when I read that, I said, airplane is I was coming. Gonna say, I think I could have guessed that one myself. <laughs> well, just because the show is over doesn't mean the fun is. You can find us on Facebook at the Common Good Radio Show. Plus, the show is podcasted. Text us 68683 with CG, then your message. We'd love to hear from you. We have a blast doing this, as always. We hope you join us again tomorrow. From 4 to 6 p.m., I'm Ian Simpkins along with Brian Fromm on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life.